Hey Conjurers, I'm Shan. And I'm Steph. In this self-proclaimed land of the free, we have been indoctrinated to associate terrorism with anybody outside of America, anyone foreign trying to attack us. The truth is, this country is filled with individuals who are determined to terrorize anyone who doesn't fit what they deem pure or superior. Today, I want to tell you about one American terrorist who made sure he not only spoke his version of what's right, but acted on it too. Around 1 p.m. on April 13th of 2014, police received a call from inside a Jewish community center of Greater Kansas City. Several shots had been fired into the building from a parking lot near the entrance of the White Theater. The staff calling were inside of the theater supervising teenagers who were auditioning for a singing competition. In that same theater, a crew was preparing for a 2 p.m. performance of To Kill a Mockingbird. There was also a fitness program for autistic children being conducted at that time, including 15 children and 6 volunteers. Before firing into the building, the gunman fired his handgun at two men outside. One ran off and the other fled in his car. The bullet struck the shoulder bag of his seat and he escaped uninjured. After the first victims escaped, he fired several shots into the building before turning his sights back to the outside of the building. He then shot 69-year-old Dr. William Lewis Colperon and his 14-year-old grandson, Reet Griffin Underwood, as they pulled into the parking lot. Dr. William died on the scene from a gunshot wound to the head, while Reet was taken to the hospital and was pronounced dead shortly after. What the actual fuck? Is he targeting children intentionally? What is happening? I mean, he had to have known a ton of children were there in that building at that time, so it sure seems that way. He's now killed two seemingly random people and fired into a building full of children. Please tell me that's it. Oh, I wish. After not having as much success as he wanted, the gunman fled to the village Shalom, which was a Jewish retirement center located over a mile away from the Jewish community center. Once the gunman entered the parking lot, he immediately started firing at anyone he could see. Terry Lomano was one of the three shot and sadly was the only one to not survive her wounds. At 2.45 p.m., one hour and 45 minutes after he started his rampage, he was arrested outside of Valley Park Elementary School. Inside the car, the police discovered several weapons, including a handgun, assault rifle, and the Model 870 shotgun he had used on all of his victims that afternoon. Authorities told reporters that the gunman had shouted Hail Hitler numerous times during the shootings and during his arrest. After his arrest, his home in Aurora, Missouri was searched, and there they found three boxes of ammunition, a red shirt with a swastika symbol, anti-Semitic publications, including books written by Hitler, a list of kosher places, directions to the synagogues, and a printout of the Kansas City Superstar competition at the community center, which meant he went to the Jewish community center to attack during that specific event. During the press conference regarding this tragedy, the Federal Bureau of Investigation told the press they had determined that the motivation for the shootings was anti-Semitism. The suspect in custody would later be identified as Fraser Glenn Miller Jr. Oh, hell no. He went to a community center, a retirement home, and they arrested him at an elementary school. It's obvious his racist intent, but why is he going after children and the elderly? Okay, granted, innocent lives were taken, but just knowing how ruthless mass shooters are these days, I am thankful that he didn't go into that elementary school. Uh, yeah. 
who is this guy? Not that he deserves our time, but Conjurers, you know, we like to give you a little background on everybody involved in the case. So here we go. Frazier Glenn Miller Jr. was born on November 23rd of 1940 in North Carolina. He joined the Army after dropping out of high school, where he would go on to serve 20 years and become a master sergeant. Everything changed for him the day his father handed him a copy of The Thunderbolt by Edward Reed Fields. Edward was a far-right white racialist, so this newsletter was exactly what you would expect it to be. Racist. He became a big fan of the publication and took it all as fact. Not long after that, he was discharged from the U.S. Army for spreading racist propaganda. Though I couldn't find exactly when he got married, we know at some point he married Marge Miller and they shared three children together, Frazier Miller III, Jesse Miller, and Michelle Miller. In 1980, Frazier founded the local chapter of a Ku Klux Klan known as the Carolina Knights, which later developed into the White Patriot Party, a.k.a. WPP. The WPP focused on racist Christian identity theology, supporting segregation in South Africa, also known as pro-apartheid. They openly advocated for an all-white nation in what they called the territory of the American South. Frazier was so determined to spread his racist propaganda that he even ran for the Democratic Party's nomination for governor of North Carolina in 1984, which to no one's surprise, he lost. That didn't stop him from running two years later in 1986, though, for the Republican Party's nomination for North Carolina seat, which he actually placed top three candidates, but ultimately lost again. Ugh. First of all, there were a lot of clear red flags that he was a radicalized racist piece of shit. He founded a chapter of the KKK, for fuck's sake. These are the people trying to run this country. He's openly and loudly racist, and he had the power to manipulate so many people to think the same as him, and that is terrifying. How is none of this illegal? This guy should have at least been on an FBI watch list. Well, in 1985, Frazier was arrested based on evidence found on his organization's computer systems regarding the Southern Poverty Law Center, also known as the SPLC. The SPLC is a nonprofit legal advocacy organization specializing in civil rights and public interest litigation. The information they located was evidence of a plan to assassinate the SPLC leader at the time, Morris Thies. Frazier ended up signing an agreement with Morrissey in exchange for dropping the lawsuit they had filed against him. The peace between the SPLC and Frazier lasted only a year, though, because by 1986, Frazier was found to have violated their agreement. He was charged with criminal contempt of court for operating a paramilitary training camp. He was sentenced to one year in prison with six months of the term suspended and was given a no-contact order by the court, which prevented him from associating with his fellow white supremacists. From there on out, Frazier committed himself to becoming a career criminal. On April 6 of 1987, Frazier typed out a letter titled Declaration of War and mailed it out to 5,000 recipients. Okay, so I won't read the actual letter because it makes me very uncomfortable. But in it, he's declaring war against black Americans, Jewish Americans, the LGBTQIA community, and anyone of mixed race and anyone who considers themselves an ally of any of those communities. The letter contained a hit list of high-profile targets, including several federal officials. He assigned a point system to assassination targets as if it was some kind of game. One excerpt from his letter said, and I quote, Let the blood of our enemies flood the streets, rivers, and fields of the nation in holy vengeance and justice. The Jews are our main and most formidable enemies, brothers, and sisters. 
They are truly the children of Satan, as Christ tells us in St. John 8:44. We promise death to those who attack us or attempt to place us in Zog's dungeons. End quote. This makes me sick. This complete waste of a human life made his beliefs and his intentions very clear and broadcast them far and wide. He should have been stopped before anyone died. Right. All the signs were there that he was going to do something insane to prove his point. That letter had to be illegal, at least, right? This letter was a violation of his bond, to which the courts immediately issued a warrant for his arrest. In 1987, the mobile home he shared with others was raided in Ozark, Missouri. The police located plastic explosives, dynamite, pipe bombs, hand grenades, a fully automatic M16, AR-15s, sawed-off shotguns, pistols, crossbows, and more than a half a ton of ammunition. Him and the three individuals he was living with were taken into federal custody, and Frazier was sentenced to five years. He agreed to testify against his housemates, which allowed him to only serve three years before he was released. Prison didn't do much for him, though, because upon his release, his racist ways continued. This included writing a book called A White Man Speaks Out, which he privately published in 1999. In the book, he goes on to complain about Jewish people, the removal of Christianity practices in public schools, Brown versus Board, interracial marriages, and the legalization of porn. In it, he states, white Christians today represent the best of our race, end quote. In 2004, he posted an essay calling on Americans to rise up against Jews, people of color, immigrants, LGBT people, abortion, and church-state separation. In 2006, he tried again to make his political aspirations a reality. He ran as an independent write-in candidate against Representative Roy Blunt in the 7th Congregational District of Missouri. In 2009, he published an essay criticizing abortion, LGBTQ rights, and church-state separation as a government attack on white Christians. In 2010, he expressed open hatred for Jews repeatedly during an interview with David Pakman on The David Pakman Show. It would later come out that Frazier was caught by police engaging in sexual activity with a black trans prostitute. His excuse was his only intentions were to lure them into the car to beat them up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds like his hate might just be coming from his hatred of himself. Okay, look, I grew up in Christianity, and the message that quote-unquote sinners tempt good Christian people to sin is a dangerous message. A clearly disturbed person like him could take that idea and blame those groups for what he considers sinful thoughts on his own part. If there's one thing I learned about racist, sexist, prejudiced individuals, it's that they're going to use old Christianity as an excuse every time. It's still so completely mind-blowing that he was so outspoken about his ideology and still no one saw the attack coming. Steph will take it from here after this short break. Since Frazier was unable to purchase guns legally due to his conviction back in the 1980s, investigators had to figure out exactly where he obtained all those weapons he had. It turns out he was able to purchase them through a straw buyer, which allowed him to bypass the federal background check. Just for reference, a straw buyer is a person who makes a purchase on behalf of another person. The act is only considered illegal if the transaction is fraudulent or the goods are purchased for someone who is legally barred from making the purchase themselves. One of those straw buyers was John Mark Rydell, who lived in Lawrence County, Missouri. He was arrested and charged with purchasing a shotgun for Frazier from the local Walmart four days prior to the shooting. 
Not only did he illegally purchase them for Frazier, he lied on the federal firearms forms that he had to fill out to complete the purchase. He was charged and faced up to 10 years in prison for the fraud, and they were considering making him an accessory to the murders as well. However, in 2016, the U.S. District Court sentenced John to only five years probation and a fee of $100. Well, he definitely did not deserve to go scot-free, and he may not have pulled the trigger, but he contributed to those lives being lost. He got a slap on the wrist, which is insane. No way he didn't know what Frazier planned to do with it. Though I am glad he got his time, I am more interested in Frazier's punishment. So at Frazier's arraignment, two days after the shooting on April 15th, he appeared on video and requested a lawyer. His charges were one count of capital murder for both William and Reed. Since they were both together and died by the same act, their charges were considered one. For Terry, he was charged with first-degree murder. At this time, the prosecutors weren't seeking the death penalty or pursuing a hate crime charge, despite the fact that they knew Frazier's history. Ten days later, he was granted a one-month delay before his next court appearance, and bail was set at $10 million. Another month after that, more charges were assigned to him, including three counts of attempted first-degree murder, aggravated assault, and criminally discharging firearms at an occupied building. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, they reported that Fraser's wife, Marge, told them Fraser had gone to a casino in Missouri the afternoon prior to the shootings. He called her the next morning at around 10.30 a.m. to tell her his winnings were up and all was well. The shootings occurred less than three hours after that phone call. On November 15th, the Kansas City Star reported that Frazier had begun planning the shootings in late March when he became convinced he was dying from emphysema. Okay, I have never heard of combining murder charges. Usually it's two counts of capital murder for two individuals. That's a weird law. I've never heard of that either. Feels sketchy to me. Like, maybe they're going lighter on him than they should. Uh, very much possible. Nothing surprises me in this country. <laughs> what happened at the trial? Well, the public attorneys who were assigned to work for Frazier during the pre-trial period presented prosecutors with an offer where he would plead guilty to first-degree murder and accept a sentence of life in prison without parole if the death penalty was taken off the table. The DA handling the case bluntly told them that Frazier would not get any deal under any circumstances. During his trial, Frazier decided to represent himself. It was full of ranting and raising bizarre objections, such as regarding witnesses' oaths. Apparently, he took issue with the oaths, quote, because they did not include the word God. Frazier and his main supporter, the neo-Nazi Alex Linder, attempted to present hours worth of quote-unquote evidence that his actions were justified for a whole slew of racist reasons, but were only able to get a few statements on the record before being shut down by the prosecution and the presiding judge. On November 10, 2015, Frazier was formally sentenced to death by Johnson County District Judge Thomas Kelly Ryan. Frazier died in prison on May 3, 2021 at the age of 80. The cause of his death has not been identified, but the Kansas Department of Corrections stated that preliminary assessment indicates the death was due to natural causes. Well, one less trash human being causing utter chaos in the society. Good riddance. I want to hear more about the victims. This man and everything he stood for was quite nauseating to research, and I'm honestly tired of hearing about him. Tell me about the people we actually care about here. I agree. That's enough of him. 
If you've been listening to our podcast for long, you've probably noticed that we feel strongly about advocating for the victims and in no way glorifying the killers. It's important to remember when listening to or watching true crime that the victims were real people with dreams and loved ones. Never lose sight of who really matters in these cases. Like Dr. William Lewis Coulperon, also known as Dr. Bill. He was 69 years old when he was killed. He was married to the love of his life, Melinda, for 49 years. Together they had three children who blessed them with 10 grandchildren. Dr. Bill was loved by his family, friends, patients, and his entire community. He was lovingly described as the family physician in cowboy boots and suspenders who always put his loved ones and patients ahead of himself. His patients were never just a job, they were his friends. One of his patients lost their mother close to Christmas, so Dr. Bill invited him to spend Christmas with his family. Dr. Bill was active in his Presbyterian church and loved singing in their choir every Sunday. His favorite hobby was volunteering with Duncan Little Theater, a nonprofit performance center. Everyone who knew him loved him, and no one had a single mean thing to say about him. Dr. Bill's only daughter, Mindy, lost not only her father that day, but also her 14-year-old son, Reet Underwood. Popeye, as Dr. Bill's grandchildren called him, was taking Reet to try out for the Kansas City Singing Competition. The Blue Valley High School freshman was prepared to sing You Will Miss Me When I'm Gone that day for his audition. Reet was very active in his high school debate team and theater. He had already competed in eight debate competitions and had already earned a varsity letter for it. He was so excited to audition for the singing competition, he had already proven his amazing talent singing the national anthem for school events and participating in the school musical. Reet was an Eagle Scout and loved to spend time in the outdoors, especially with his grandfather. Mindy told ABC7 News he was with us for a wonderful 14 years. He had a really full life for a 14-year-old, and we were very blessed. The family is heartbroken that two of the kindest souls were taken simply for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Imagine losing two of your immediate family members at the same time. Like, who do you grieve first? In her case, her child, of course. There is nothing worse than losing a child, in my opinion. Losing a parent is, of course, heartbreaking, but to lose a child, that could break anyone. That's another type of hell I wish for no one to ever have to experience. What about the retirement home victim? Yeah, the third victim that horrible day was Terry Lamano, a 53-year-old mother of three who worked as an occupational therapist at the Children's Center for the Visually Impaired. She spent most of her years there working with babies assigned to the infant program and one year working for the preschool-aged children at the CCVI school. Terry's son, who volunteered for many years at CCVI, recalled, quote, One of my fondest memories of her is when I was able to volunteer at the Children's Center for the Visually Impaired. I cherished the moments I got to see her work with the children. Seeing how passionate she was helping others was one of her greatest attributes. Anytime I got, I tried to sneak away to eat lunch with her in her office to tell her all the stories I had interacting with the children, end quote. Terry was at the Village Shalom Assisted Living Facility that day to visit her mother who lived there. Her two sisters were already there that day as well and didn't realize when they heard the shots that their sister was the victim. Terry and her husband Jim were planning to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. 
which would have been just two days after her death. Maybe the best way to describe Terry, though, is with her own words. After the shooting, a five-page autobiography was found in her car. She wrote it a month earlier at a church retreat she had attended with her longtime church group from St. Peter's Catholic Church in Kansas City. In it, she wrote, When I think of words to describe myself now, I think courageous, strong, and somewhat confident, assertive, and capable. Life experiences do mold us, but fortunately the clay is pliable, end quote. I bet she was truly all of those things, and she seemed like a real force in her community. She was practically a saint. So what happened after the shootings? Several high-profile people made statements in regards to Fraser's crime that day and the innocent lives that were taken, including our former President Barack Obama. He called the shooting a horrific act. His statement included, quote, While we do not know all of the details surrounding today's shooting, the initial reports are heartbreaking, end quote. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder also issued a statement in the wake of the shooting, saying, I was horrified to learn of this weekend's tragic shooting outside Kansas City. These senseless acts of violence are all the more heartbreaking as they were perpetrated on the eve of the solemn occasion of Passover. Then other politicians issued statements in which they offered their condolences to those killed in the shooting and decried the anti-Semitic motivations of the shooter. The Jewish Community Center offered condolences to the victims' families on its Facebook page. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sent his condolences to the families of those killed and made a statement the day after the attack, saying, We condemn the shootings, which, according to all signs, were perpetrated out of hatred for Jews. This case is one of the many fueled by hate. And though it didn't happen that long ago, we're still dealing with cases like these today. Our most recent one being the 2022 Buffalo shooting that was solely focused on taking out black Americans to preserve the white race and take out those who are less desirable to them. Unfortunately, the law doesn't punish these murderers to the full extent, and we have to depend on the better of us to protect each other and look out for each other. To the families of the 2014 massacre and all of those that came before and after, we're sorry that people like Frazier took your loved ones away way too soon. Thanks to the Leadership Conference Education Fund and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, they have launched Communities Against Hate, an initiative of 11 prominent national organizations working together to address the disturbing spike in hate incidents across the United States. As a part of this initiative, the organizations are launching a database to bring visibility to hate incidents and helping victims and organizations obtain access to legal resources and social services. For resources and information, please call 1-844-9-NO-HATE. That's 1-844-966-4283. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week, and you can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Smithsonite is a beautiful and soothing stone that can help calm the emotions and connect you to your heart center. It's relaxing, beautiful, and calming to look at. Place one in your home or wear one around your neck while you're out. These days, it's hard to let your guard down when you walk out of your front door. 
We never truly know where the next tragedy will strike and may not be able to stop something from happening, at least in this country. The least we can do is calm our minds. It's also such a cool looking stone that it looks great as home decor. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.